Hello, welcome to The Quest. My name is Alan Mulhern. Some announcements. Firstly, the yearly Quest lecture series begins in April 2024. This is separate to the podcast series. The topics to be covered are Is transhumanism the destiny of Homo sapiens? Is the world fracturing along the lines of civilizations? Is there an archetypal foundation to the human psyche? And how archetypes can be a useful tool for growth and development of individuals and organisations? Modern warfare. What are the chances of nuclear engagement? Globalisation. What is it? And has it come to a halt? What might death be a transition to? Near-death experiences and the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Is apocalyptical thought a useful lens to view the 21st century? And finally, is there a world soul? Secondly, the Secret of the Golden Flower Meditation Programme begins on the 2nd of January 2024. This is a yearly meditation programme. The substance of it is that one rises in the morning in one's own home and one meditates for half an hour. This occurs for 100 days. There is a giving up of a central addiction that accompanies the programme. I send out once a week a newsletter which centres around a section of the Taoist text, The Secret of the Golden Flower. And participants study this text each week, not in a cognitive manner, but in a contemplative one. There will be a Zoom meeting to start things and one to finish. This programme is free. While there is a moderate cost for the Quest Lecture Series. For both these programmes, you may contact me at thepilgrimquest at gmail.com or alternatively seek contact details on my website, alanmulhern.com. This episode is an addendum to the four part mini series just completed on the ecological disaster of our times. I had intended to finish the series with the last episode. However, some concluding report and thoughts concerning the United Nations Climate Conference, COP28, is appropriate. No doubt further episodes at some point in the future will be necessary since climate crises darken our skies. The last episode of the miniseries, Season 2, Episode 90, was released at the end of October a month before the COP28 conference began. In that episode, I argued, firstly, the greenhouse emission targets are not being reached on time. Carbon dioxide emissions at record levels are almost 50% higher than their average throughout the history of our species. Secondly, the vast majority of countries have CO2 reduction targets that are inadequate with respect to timing, and collectively have no chance of holding global average temperature rises to 1.5 degrees centigrade or the 2 degrees temperature goal by 2050, which is the Paris Agreement of 2015. Thirdly, I am aware that the IPCC uses a 10-year rolling average to gauge current Earth temperature and compare it to the 1850-1900 base period. But according to my reading, the Earth is already blasting through the 1.5 degree threshold and beyond, 
with record temperatures being set year after year. Moreover, far from slowing down, this is accelerating. Panic is emerging as it is realised that both the 1.5 is being breached and the 2 degree will be breached shortly. Fourthly, green technologies have made substantial gains, but these have been additional to, and not replacement of, fossil fuel technologies. Fifthly, many countries, far from pushing ahead with the Paris Accord agreements, were simply saying, prior to the COP28 conference, that they had to continue with fossil fuels. Sixthly, vast subsidies are being paid to fossil fuel production and consumption that dwarf the investment in clean technologies. Seventhly, exhortation to the world's leaders from the United Nations have very limited impact. Eighthly, the world is drifting towards the mother of all storms. We need to prepare for survival in a degraded world. This current episode is a catch-up on the COP28 conference. For those not acquainted with this political theatre, it is a United Nations annual conference ritual on climate change held in different locations each year. It has regularly sounded the clarion call for action on climate change. This COP conference has now said, and for the first time, that there is an urgent necessity to tackle its roots, the emissions from fossil fuels. The United Nations, under whose banner the conference is called, has the backing of the scientific establishment, upon whose findings the United Nations diagnostics, prognoses and prescriptions are based. I use medical terminology deliberately. Personally, I find the science of the IPCC, the IEA, etc. very convincing. My only reservation is the speed of change and the dangers of underestimation. Outside the realm of science, my other reservations are that the political will and determination to act on this science is globally very weak. That the dependence on fossil fuels by consuming countries is very strong. And that the determination of fossil fuel producing countries to continue the output of coal, oil and gas is unremitting. The world is divided. It is extremely difficult, if not impossible, for the United Nations to change this reality. The conference was attended by almost 100,000 official delegates, support staff and visitors, enough to fill some of the world's largest football stadiums. This was an increase of almost 2.5 times the last COP conference. Almost all delegates flying into air-conditioned hotels to talk about climate damage. There is something ironic, perhaps even obscene, about such a spectacle. A kind of climate woodstock. It would all, of course, be worthwhile if the outcomes were effective for the task in hand, capable of implementation and were not simply aspirational. Alas, this is not the case. The world is dangerously divided and the COP highlights these fateful divisions which are driving humanity to the edge of disaster. Lamentably, the United Nations appears to be the only institution the world has that could broker a climate agreement in a conflicted world. But despite fine words, the planet hurtles towards extreme climate change regardless of reason, science and a growing mood of panic and desperation. Actually, 
also, despite the convictions of some scientists and the United Nations, that the means are available to accomplish a profound technological transition. Compared to previous years of COP conferences, there was a fourfold increase of fossil fuel representatives and their lobbyists, a total of at least 2,400, who were determined to have their say. Subsequent to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, oil, gas and coal producers have been doing very well, and by the time of the COP they were increasingly confident. The United States, supposedly in favour of climate transition with the Biden administration, is in fact at an all-time high in oil and gas production. This COP was also notable for the large number of private sector organisations who were involved directly or indirectly in the oil, gas and coal industries. Many reports had it that numerous business deals were hatched at a climate conference in a state of world emergency. The location of the conference was in the United Arab Emirates and its president was Ahmed Al-Jaba, who is the UAE's industry minister and the CEO of Abu Dhabi National Oil. It was claimed that his experience in the energy sector enabled him to involve more industrialists in climate talks, bring them to the table at the COP and have them commit to a timeline to phase out fossil fuels. However, the UAE, besides being a major oil producer and exporter, is a member of the OPEC cartel and a neighbour of Saudi Arabia, which is the dominant member of this cartel. It goes without saying that the OPEC cartel, which together have 80% of the world's oil reserves, have immense economic interests in the maintenance of fossil fuel production. And to expect them to agree to a phase-out of fossil fuels is very naive. Also, to be fair, the OPEC cartel pointed out the glaringly obvious that it is the global demand for fossil fuels that sustains its supply. This demand needs to be addressed and then supply will diminish. If the OPEC cartel were to cut fossil fuels production by, say, half by 2030, and continue to net zero by 2050, unless clean energy sources were in replacement, large parts of the world would return to the Stone Age in short measure. The COP of 2023 had been scheduled since the 2015 Paris Accord to be a stock taker. It is placed halfway between 2015 and 2030, when certain goals must have been achieved in order to cut greenhouse gas emissions and to be on track to keeping the world within the limit of 1.5 degrees above its pre-industrial temperature level. The 1.5 has been chosen as the danger threshold beyond which very serious consequences, some of them unstoppable, are triggered. COP28 should assess what the world has or has not achieved since 2015 and in the light of this, frame a strategy to achieve the 2030 target in the limited time that is left. To date, as of mid-December 2023, we await the delayed stock take from the conference. For example, this could be framed in terms of the emissions gap, which, to repeat, 
is the difference between where global greenhouse gas emissions are heading and where emissions should be in 2030 so that the Earth would be below the 1.5 degree threshold. The ambition is to achieve net zero by 2050, whereby greenhouse gases produced by human activity are reduced or abated to zero. However, the truth of the matter is that the famous Paris Accord of 2015 consists of words with very little implementation. The majority of nations have not followed the agreements, which in themselves were less than adequate anyway. The United Nations had already published on November 30th, 2023, that is, immediately prior to the conference, its latest emissions gap report, which clearly showed that the world was way off course. Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, gave the following warning. I quote, Today's emissions gap report shows that if nothing changes, in 2030 emissions will be 22 gigatons higher than the 1.5 degree limit allows. That's roughly the total present annual emissions of the United States, China and the European Union combined. It shows greenhouse emissions, he says, reaching all-time highs. This year there is a 1.2% increase on last year, when these levels should be shooting down. And those emissions are shattering temperature records. June, July, August, September, October 2023 were all the hottest on record. Present trends are racing our planet down a dead-end 3-degree temperature rise. The emissions gap, he says, is more like an emissions canyon. A canyon littered with broken promises, broken lives and broken records. All this is a failure of leadership, a betrayal of the vulnerable and a massive missed opportunity. Renewables have never been cheaper or more accessible. We know it is still possible to make the 1.5 degree limit a reality. And we know how to get there. We have roadmaps from the International Energy Agency and the IPCC. It requires tearing out the poison root of the climate crisis, fossil fuels, and it demands a just, equitable, renewables transition. Unquote. There followed, in his report, a passionate exhortation for nations and companies to step up to their responsibilities. Instead, the COP has failed to deliver a result commensurate with the United Nations warnings and the clear science upon which it is based. Emissions need to be cut by 43% by 2030 so as to be on target. However, the reverse is happening. Emissions and fossil fuel consumption are increasing year by year and are likely to be 9-10% to higher by the decade's end. COP28 showed the power of the pro-fossil fuel lobby and its supporters, that is those who have no intention of phasing out fossil fuels, or in any way damaging their economic and financial interests. It has become clear that there is enormous opposition to the phasing out of fossil fuels. Indeed, in the final days of the conference, the president of the OPEC cartel issued strong advice to all its members 
not to accept proposals for the phasing out of fossil fuels and to concentrate on emissions reduction only, rather than on fuel production. This would imply that OPEC would approve carbon capture technology, for example, but not the reduction of oil and gas production. It has become clear that most countries, certainly but not only developing ones, cannot afford to scrap their fossil fuel-powered electricity generation according to the timetable and reductions suggested. To achieve anything with respect to the timetable would require enormous financing from the richer countries to make this happen. Much of this finance would have to be free since the developing world is already in a huge debt crisis. There is no spare money for this transition. It would have to be given by richer nations. And frankly, is this possible? The COP conference kick-started proceedings by securing commitments to a £400 million fund to help developing nations and those most vulnerable. However, this is a drop in the ocean, since trillions are needed to make such a transition possible. Other countries, including India and China, have backed a popular call for boosting renewable energies, but have not explicitly endorsed a fossil fuel phase-out at COP28. The United States is also in a seriously compromised position. On the one hand, it says it is in the camp of those who wish to see a phase-down of fossil fuels, but on the other hand, United States oil and gas production in 2023 is at record levels. Moreover, while developing nations need to install renewable energy systems, as pointed out, who is going to finance such extraordinary large sums of money? The European Union does not produce any oil of consequence and therefore has less to lose by calling for the phase-down of fossil fuels. Norway, a large producer of oil and located in Europe, is not a member of the European Union. India's position is that it recognises the need for renewable energy and although its total greenhouse emissions are very high, its per capita emissions are very low given its huge population. It claims that the West has already eaten up its historic carbon budget and should drastically reduce its own emissions so that India and others can develop. China will not reduce its coal production or coal consumption although its contributions to renewables have been very significant. It remains the largest emitter of greenhouse gases on the planet by a long chalk, far exceeding those of the United States. Russia, a petrostate deeply linked to Saudi Arabia, has no intention of following any Western advice system such as the United Nations. The UK in 2023 has decided to max out its North Sea oil reserves, saying that if it were not to use them, it would be forced to buy in oil and gas from other countries, and its consumption would be the same, whether its origins were domestic or foreign. In other words, there is not enough renewables or nuclear to substitute for fossil fuel production. On that logic, the rest of the world that produces oil or gas or coal is also off the hook. Many developing nations are advocating that the developed world, which originated the Industrial Revolution and therefore the climate crisis, should not only pay for climate damage, but also pay for the transition to renewable clean energies.
So finally, what does the supposed agreed COP programme recommend that nations might do? The agreement calls on parties to, quote, transition away from fossil fuels in energy systems in a just, orderly and equitable manner, accelerating action in this critical decade so as to achieve net zero by 2050 in keeping with the science, unquote. Comment. It is good that this is recommended for the first time at a COP conference. It is true that it should have a normalising effect that is making certain ideas more normal, which were previously considered radical. That was the best the COP can do, but unfortunately it is totally inadequate to the scale of emergency. Record emissions, record planned expansion of fossil fuels, hopelessly falling short of necessary targets, and the reality of record earth temperatures, melting ice caps and so on. Secondly, to triple renewable energy capacity globally and double the global average annual rate of energy efficiency improvements by 2030. Comments. This is a good recommendation and looks like the correct path. Signatories to the Charter agree to triple the world's renewable energy capacity to at least 11,000 gigawatts by 2030 and double the average annual rate of energy efficiency improvements to 4% per year until 2030. Welcome though it is, renewable energies have also met serious obstacles because of the severe queues in connecting to the electricity power grid lines. There needs to be an overhaul of electricity grid lines globally to accommodate renewable energy. This is a cost unforeseen in the original calculations. The International Energy Agency has said $4.5 trillion will be needed each year for clean energy alone by the early 2030s, up from $1.8 trillion now. These figures are enormous, but it is only as countries approach the renewable energy frontier that their true costs will become apparent. There are always precedents for optimism of a free or cheap energy source, sometimes a totally free one. This is the equivalent of alchemy in economics. In the 1970s, for example, the British Secretary of State for Energy, in a televised interview that I remember well, said that nuclear energy would provide practically costless energy. Alas, how mistaken that was. Thirdly, accelerating zero and low emissions technology, including renewables, nuclear, abatement and removal technologies, including carbon capture and utilisation storage, and low carbon hydrogen production, to enhance efforts in substitution of unabated fossil fuels. That was quite a mouthful by the COP document. So it's just recommending a series of renewables, nuclear, carbon removal, low-carbon hydrogen, etc. Comment. This is all interesting and part of an ongoing experiment. Of the above-mentioned possibilities, nuclear may, despite the previous comments, prove very important. But there is a very long-term lead between the decision to construct and the actual construction of a nuclear power station. 
it's not part of a recipe for the 2030 goals. But beyond that, it may be a more important part of the energy picture, despite its tremendous security and decommissioning issues. I should add that carbon capture and storage technologies, while obviously preferred by oil, gas and coal-producing countries, have not been proven at scale to be effective at all. Fourthly, I quote the COP document, a long-sought climate loss and damage fund was approved as wealthy countries committed more than 400 million on day one in a move that has allowed the fund to get up and running. A $30 billion commitment by the United Arab Emirates for a separate climate finance fund that aims to mobilise $250 billion in green investments by 2030 is also positive, as are the billions of dollars in climate finance pledges from the public and private sector. Comment. But the global energy transition requires these billions to become trillions, which is a different order of finance altogether. Certainly, it will be cheaper than footing the bill for ongoing climate damage. But who will pay, and under what repayment conditions, if any? If the West were asked to finance developing countries' transition, one would have Europe and America being asked to finance India, China and Saudi Arabia and others, since they, and many fossil-producing countries, are classified as developing countries. The mind boggles at the politics. Fifthly, the COP recommendation is that there is a role for transitional fuels. Comment, this is highly contentious as it sees the continued use of gas but actually I think it is realistic. Sixthly, wealthier countries, which were the largest historical emitters of greenhouse gases, must cut their emissions fastest. Comment. If this excludes China, India, Pakistan, Indonesia, Bangladesh, Russia and other large emitters, the COP is unlikely to last. The emergency timetable does not allow for this. Seventhly, Accelerating and substantially reducing non-carbon dioxide emissions, including in particular methane emissions globally by 2030. Comment. This is important and it is encouraging that 50 big oil and gas companies have pledged to reduce or eliminate them. There are many other companies, incidentally, that didn't pledge this. Certainly, satellite technology can now detect methane sources to whatever oil rig. Some reports indicate methane, a far more deadly greenhouse gas than CO2, has contributed 30% to greenhouse gas emissions over the industrial period. Eighthly, phase out of inefficient fossil fuel subsidies that encourage wasteful consumption as soon as possible. Comment. The scale of these subsidies is far, far larger than the figures I gave in the last episode. Recent reports since that episode, for example in the Financial Times of November the 30th, 2023, indicate that the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, has calculated that explicit or unhidden subsidies in 170 countries in 2022, that is the most recent figures, were $1.3 trillion dollars. Don't forget, a trillion is a thousand billion, and a billion is a thousand million. 
So a huge figure of explicit, unhidden, easy-to-see subsidies across most of the countries of the world. This figure was double the level of two years previously. So the subsidies are increasing for fossil fuels. The report of the IMF stated that, quote, 80% of global coal consumption was priced at below half of its efficient level in 2022. However, that is just the beginning. Implicit or more hidden subsidies would raise this figure to $5 trillion in 2022. Thus, total subsidies were around $7 trillion, adding them both together, explicit and implicit, or 7.1% of global gross domestic product. These horrific figures suppose the world fulfils the Paris climate goals, which it obviously does not, as we've already pointed out. Therefore, argues the IMF, the true figures of an adjusted implicit subsidy level plus the explicit level gives a total subsidy level for fossil fuels of $10 trillion, which is over 10% of the world's gross domestic product. This makes a mockery of all the clean energy investment that is hoped for. Such subsidies will guarantee the continuance of fossil fuels into the distant future and confirm that the world is totally addicted to an energy source that will destroy it. So this series of podcasts has covered a wide range of material. Our first episode, season 87, focused on the rise in greenhouse gas emissions and the impact on global warming. The next, number 88, took the position that life on this planet has always been deeply interlinked with climate. The Earth passes through great cycles of glacial and warming conditions, with enormous consequences for the promotion or restriction and even extinction of life. Hominins, our ancestors, adapted to changing habitats and climatic environments. However, all but one of the Homo lineage have gone extinct. Such extinctions usually coincided with severe climate change. Such change, often very severe, quite simply, has been one of the biggest influences upon life on Earth and upon human history. The next episode, number 89, identified the other elements of the ecological crisis aside from climate. These include biodiversity loss, chemical pollution into land, air, rivers and oceans, particle pollution of the atmosphere, deforestation and land use, freshwater scarcity, the phosphorus and nitrogen cycle. And this episode also identified business civilization as the immediate source of the contemporary ecological disaster. The last episode, number 90, argued that the greenhouse gas emission targets are not being reached on time and we need to prepare for survival in a degraded world. It suggested that the ultimate cause of the climate crisis lies in the human psyche. This episode gave a review of COP28, which has only confirmed my view that despite strenuous efforts of the United Nations, the IPCC and many other institutes and organisations that have struggled to create and use the latest knowledge and science available so as to alter the oncoming crises, the world is politically and economically unwilling or unable to act on this knowledge sufficiently so as to avoid catastrophic consequences 
in the decades to come. This is not a particularly difficult conclusion to come to, depressing though it is. Mankind's economic short-term interests triumph over reason and common sense. To prepare for a severely degraded world, however, is a task totally other than what we have contemplated so far. Further thoughts on this matter will be the subject of later podcasts.